Welcome to the Standard Age Podcast, a casual conversation about the lives of entrepreneurs and those growing companies. I can't thank you enough for listening as these episodes have been a wonderful supplement to the line of apparel that I'm thrilled to share is steadily growing. If you like what you hear, please visit standard-h.com and sign up for our email list. The website not only hosts every episode of this show, but also allows you to explore the entire product assortment and our latest travel recommendations. As an email subscriber, you will be the first to receive product release information as well as receive offers no one else is privy to. Just visit standard-h.com for more information. Seeing Standard H worn by a growing number of watch enthusiasts has been incredibly cool to witness, so chances are good if you're listening to this, you're probably an enthusiast already. However, if not, it makes no difference as Passion Find Jewelry welcomes everyone into their shop in Solana Beach, California. If you're already in deep, you'll know some of the brands that Tim Jackson and his team carry, which are some of the most highly sought-after independent watch manufacturers sold today. Names like Roger Smith, Grunfeld, Kudoke, Habring, Sarpaneva, and many more. If you can't make it to California, visit passionfinejewelry.com for their entire offering online. This episode is also brought to you by Contonement. Contonement's flagship product, the Kerchief, is a perfect medium between a handkerchief and a bandana. Featuring iconic designs such as the Fender Stratocaster and the dashboard of a Volkswagen GTI, these utilitarian cloths are an item that should be a mainstay in your everyday carry. Tuck one in a back pocket or use one as a neckerchief. Visit them at contonement.co, that's C-A-N-T-O-N-M-E-N-T dot co, and use the code STANDARDH in all caps, no spaces, for 20% off everything in their online shop. Now let's get to the show. Five years ago, I had heard about an event called Lufka Cult, and for its third annual car show, it was held at the mid-century design manufacturing facility for a brand called Modernica. If you're an astute follower of architecture, or perhaps more specifically the fiberglass Eames chairs, you're probably familiar with this LA-based company. I've been a fan for years, in fact, I lucked out and won a chair through a silent auction held by Jonathan Ward at Icon 4x4's Go Campaign event several years ago. But it wasn't until this past December when I was getting some holiday shopping done at Modernica's Los Angeles showroom when I met a gentleman wearing one of the more unique-looking Seikos I'd ever seen. Of course, I had to ask about it, only to later find out I was speaking to today's guest, Jay Novak, owner of Modernica. Jay's incredibly hospitable, and when I politely asked if he'd be interested in being on this podcast, he offered to have me come by the manufacturing plant, show me around, and then record. I quickly replied, say no more, and here we are. Jay offers stories from his childhood, the early days of Modernica, the growth of Lufka Colt, and of course that watch on his wrist. I hope you enjoy this one as I can't thank Jay enough for his warm welcome and of course his personal tour. It was truly special. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. Well, Jay, thanks so much for taking the time. I uh, usually start these things off with kind of where people grew up. Now, where, where did you grow up? I grew up just down the road from Los Angeles in Omaha, Nebraska. Okay, <laughs> right, yeah. Was that I-40? 80. 80, okay. Mm-hmm. So it runs through Denver, I guess. Yes. Um, now, Cheyenne. Okay. 
What what did young Jay want to do when he grew up? I had all kinds of things. Uh, musician, actor, artist, all kinds of things. I, I went to college and became a school teacher. No way. Studied history and political science and philosophy. Wow. So you went where the money was. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Now I now I I do believe I'm in philosophy. Right. At this, okay. at this age. <laughs> where did you go to college? University of Nebraska. Well, it's interesting you wanted to be an artist, musician. It sounds like you were meant for Los Angeles then. And that's why after a period of time at, in my middle 20s, I moved here. Right, right. right. To pursue those things? Yes. Just uh, t Omaha is a wonderful city. It's progressive, but it's quiet. So I, I was attracted to the action. Right, yeah. I grew up in Raleigh, so I, I kind of know the feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, what did your parents do when you were a kid for work? <clears throat> At first, when I was younger, my father was a car dealer. Um, okay. And, and a large family business with multiple dealerships. And so I was involved with mechanics and uh, design of cars and a lot of things, racing of cars. At a later time, when all that disappeared, my parents became antique dealers. Oh, no way. And so, again, it had a lot to do with aesthetics and design right. and uncovering artifacts. So that was good. Did they deal with kind of everything across the board or was it mostly furniture, for example? Or did they just deal with anything that was antique? Absolutely anything. Wow. Yeah. My mother was on uh, 60 Minutes, I think it was. She had purchased print blocks from movies that they that the newspapers used like for old movies when they used to print that way sure so they were re reversed and she sold them for ten thousand dollars this huge collection and the an, a lady got on 60 minutes saying she was going to get over a million dollars for them really which she never did right she she didn't Interesting. My mother's pretty smart. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, she kind of saw through it, I guess. Well, that's fascinating. So were they dealing antiques then in Omaha, I take it? Yes, for a long time. Right. Yeah. So what was your first job in Los Angeles when you got here? I worked... Um, I worked for a Porsche dealer. No way. In sales or yes. mechanic? Yes, okay. no, in sales. And that was lasted about three months. And what but, year was this? Um, seven, 78, something okay. like that. I worked for a lot of Porsche dealers in Los Angeles. Uh, learned a lot about business. I worked for some really smart people. Sure. And uh, my final job was at a Mercedes dealership. And I um, oversaw restoration and reconditioning and helped create a, a warranty for used cars that Mercedes picked up on really? at a later time. Oh, that's cool. I didn't create it myself. I helped, right. I helped uh, in the process. Right. Sort of origin story type stuff. Mm -hmm. What's your favorite Mercedes of all time? Well, a Gullwing and 
the, the early going. The reason being um, is that it takes me back to my childhood. Mm. Gull wings, as you probably know, weren't worth much at all in the late 50s. They were an obsolete race car, and they were troublesome. And so my father bought one for about $5,000. Wow. And um, he took me out on a a desolate highway and went 145 on the speedometer. Really? That's what the speedometer said. Right. <laughs> I was about um, nine or ten years old, and I was just thrilled. Yeah. So we got home, and my mother said, what did you do today? I said, well, we went 145 miles an hour in that car. <laughs> and my dad said, don't ever tell her what right. we do. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the unspoken rule. Oh, my gosh, man. I can only imagine what was kind of the daily driver your dad had when you were a kid since he had dealerships? He drove pickup trucks. Cool. Corvettes. Um, so he was dealing American-made stuff? Borgwards. Okay. He, Citroëns. It just, he loved the odd cars. And he, I would travel with him as a very young kid. And he would buy cars around the Midwest um, from, a lot of them came from servicemen. Who mm-hmm. brought him back from Europe? Sure, yeah. So when you first moved to LA, then and then started working for Porsche and Mercedes and those things, was that any way, shape, or form kind of like driven by your dad's opinion of what you should be doing, or was that just gravitating towards it because you loved cars? It's because I didn't know how to be a waiter. Okay, <laughs> really is what it was. <laughs> it was just it, it was while I was pursuing other things. Sure, and searching. Yeah. Uh, so there was a, a good long period of time where I was just doing that. And, and then in the uh, late 80s, I decided that this furniture, modernist furniture, was something important to me. And so uh, I started this business. So you've had Modernica since the late 80s? 89. Now was that... Are you the original owner of this business? My brother. So you started it? My, okay. My brother and myself. Got it. Started it. Wow. Uh, one of the biggest compliments I ever get is when somebody comes here and they said, so did your grandparents start this? Right. Yeah. No. <laughs> I guess I didn't realize it was this new either. I mean, late 80s is fairly recently, like considering the aesthetic, for example, you know. Well, Wesley, you're a millennial, uh, right? I was born in 79. Oh, so, well... A, a lot of people your age or younger are are not aware of the origins of the modernist movement mm-hmm. in the United States. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so Modernica is in their consciousness, but the old companies like Knoll and Herman Miller are kind of, kind of slipped away from those generations, the later generations. Mm. So what part did you play early on and what did your brother bring to the table as far as the upstart goes? Uh, my brother was a, a designer and a craftsperson. So he brought that. Uh, I was, I had been involved with the car business, so I knew retail and locations and leasing a property. And, um, and then each of us learned the other side. Right. Is, is the way I would describe it. Sure. 
Now, you were extremely gracious with your time and walking me through the production facility and everything here on these grounds. How long have you been here? Since day one? No, we had a much smaller place. Uh, we've had a few iterations. We've been here about 12 years. Oh, is that all? Okay. Yeah. Because the buildings are old, so it, it could go either way. Well, the campus, <laughs> you know? yes. The campus is here almost 100 years now. Yeah. The, the, the building, the large building that we walked through was built in 1927. Oh, that's incredible. And the building we're sitting in is 1930. Wow. Now, these are like, original windows? Yes. Yeah. All steel and glass? It's beautiful. It'd be a fortune to build it today. Yes, and in, in the late 40s when this was built, oh, wait a minute, I, I, I made a mistake. This building that we're in is 1949. Oh, okay. So. It's the other one next door is <laughs> right. 1930. Still old, but yeah. But it's a very Bauhaus uh, design building. The people that built this campus uh, were architecturally astute. How did you come across this facility? I had been looking at this for years. It was like a magic, you know, magic kingdom, right. isolated in the middle of all this industrial area. And it was far beyond my financial capabilities. Okay. But then we had the recession. And around 2009, it was announced that not only have the homes tanked, but next is coming commercial property is sure. going to go down even lower. It's all useless. So this was reduced by half. Wow. Roughly half price. And I bought it that day. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, I'd, I'd been here the one time before for Leftco Cult 3, mm -hmm. five years ago. Uh, clearly, you come from a Porsche car background what's more Porsche than Lefka cult, obviously. Um, how did that partnership kind of come about? Um, were you friends with Patrick Long or like, did you know the crew from another Avenue or a guy named Brian Calvero, okay. a, a clothing guy and a car guy, uh, introduced me to Patrick and, uh, and Howie Long, Howie Idelson. And I had immediate confidence in them. And they were telling me about this new fangled idea they had. They'd right. done a few at coffee shops, basically. Yeah, the dais. Yeah. Yeah. But there was something about these guys that was uh, easy to see. And I said, let's do it. Um, and there was some preparation and accommodation and things. But that morning, at early in the morning when the cars started coming in, I said, what is going on? You know, right. it was fantastic. Yeah. And the people that came were wonderful. It was really something. What I remember most about that was, because that was the first one I ever attended. And I had heard about them before, you know, much smaller events. One, one might could say this was the first one that really grew it, right, to kind of what it's known as now. Um, so it's not just quantity at that point it really was quality and i think those they've done such a nice job not only just with the cars and the people but bringing people like you and your business into the fold where the location is of quality as well 
is that what you saw? Is that was that the dialogue was, or was it just kind of like, hey, I like you guys, let's have it at my place? <laughs> no, no, they saw, they had the vision to see how it would work here. Mm. And as you see, we have a lot of open space. Sure. And I give them credit for uh, the vision. Mm -hmm. What do you drive currently, personally? Electric. <laughs> what have you got? Tesla. I have a. Uh, have you yeah. been an electric fan for a long time? Five years now. Okay. Yeah. It, early adopter. It uh, fairly early. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's the uh, last thing I would have expected is that I would move from gasoline. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Do you still have gas cars though that you enjoy? I've had a, a lot of different cars. I think my 928, I had a early body 928 and that was my favorite. Right. And I think I'll eventually have another one. Whatever happened to the Gullwing, I have to ask. Well, the, the car business did not work out for my family. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, it was a, my grandfather had started it and his, his children, second generation, it didn't quite work out. Right. The Gullwing was sold for $5,500 wow. in 1971. Man. <laughs> but there's so many of those stories, though. You know? Oh, like, yeah. Just, you'd have to be a fortune teller, you know, psychic. Yeah. I've done the same thing myself in this business, dealing in, in rare vintage pieces where I needed the money. Sure. So I sold something at a very low price, and it's worth 10 times that today. What, what's the worst or best example of that? <laughs> there was a designer named Finn Ewell who made a very complicated chair called a Chieftain Chair. Okay. And the earliest ones were made by a craftsman, uh, I believe in Finland. And the earliest ones were rosewood, beautifully matched. Sure. The chair I had belonged to Finn Ewell. It was his own chair that wow. he had really not used, so it was pristine. <laughs> so it, it sold for $9,000, which sounds like a lot for a chair, but it's worth 100 or more today. Yeah. yeah. So um, without giving away my affinity secrets, uh, I've been a long-term fan of Garrett Reitveld's zigzag chair. Yes. Um, and I remember seeing it in a magazine once. And it was a tour of Brad Pitt's house. And he had one that could recess into the wall. He had literally the cutout of the chair within the drywall or the cement. And he could slide the chair into the wall so that it would fit flush because this desk would fold down from the wall mm -hmm. and the desk would fold back up inherently. So ever since I saw that article, it was less about Brad Pitt and more about just the design of this chair that looked like, how does this thing even hold somebody up? You know, like there was just like the mechanics of it were, were mind boggling to me. Well, the originals now, like Casino makes them now for, I don't know, 2,800 bucks or something. But to get an old one, an official one, you know, something from the 30s. I mean, you're looking at thirty, fifty thousand dollars for this. Yes. Four pieces of wood, as they say. Yes. <laughs> but it it's the first example of that 
idea of that. As right. And it's funny that you mentioned Brad Pitt because that's who bought the Finn Yule chair. No way. Yes, it is. So do you know him personally? I did. I, I haven't seen him in, in many, many years. But he's, he's a huge architecture buff. Oh, yeah. yeah. And he, 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 he was raised in the antique business, as far as I know, oh, especially I know ceramics. Wow. So he that's did. incredible. What a coincidence. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Wow, that's insane. Well, I kind of want to talk to you about plywood because it's so instrumental to a lot of what you guys do. It is. And you also mentioned skateboarding as we were walking around and I didn't know, I I was hoping you were going to tell me you were obsessed with skateboarding because of maple ply skate decks. And that was kind of an inspiration for you. I know nothing about skateboarding to speak (laughs) of. (laughs) Right. So why plywood? Well, it's a very stable wood. It makes very efficient use of a tree because you can use a small tree and shave it, circular shaving it, and you can create a very good, stable wood product that's environmentally uh, conscious. Um, And also, it's not overly expensive. Right. Then there's molded plywood, which is a whole different thing. But that way you can make complicated shapes that are very strong. Um, the things you can't do with solid wood. And you make your own plywood here, you said, for, for some of for your... Some, the table we're sitting at is plywood that we made. Um, but we also buy plywood. Sure. Is there any advantage to making it yourself? I can use a higher quality of the inner plies. I see. And uh, I, can, I can then also mold that wood. Once, once it's plywood, you can't mold it. Mm. The glue is set. The adhesives are set. And you can't mold it. So you have to make your own plywood to mold it. I see. Okay, so that to get the bends and the shapes that you do, it's because you're making those pieces. Right. Got it. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Are you familiar with Tom Sachs? No. The artist Tom Sachs? Mm, no, I don't think so. He does a lot with plywood. And if you haven't seen it, and those listening, if you haven't seen it, on YouTube, if you're familiar with YouTube, there's a YouTuber named Casey Neistat, which he's the guy who basically originated vlogging, like video blogging. And his brother Van Neistat worked for Tom Sachs for ages and began making movies. And so they have a movie called Love Letter to Plywood. Mm. So I would encourage you to watch it. It's like maybe nine minutes or something like that. But it's really fun to like see kind of like the love letter to plywood. Well, yeah, and I think in our little walk through the factory, I think you saw uh, some of my appreciation for what plywood can do. Sure. That other woods can't do, that solid wood just can't do. Now, I'm dying to know, like, how I, I'm, I'm actually excited to, to learn how you acquired the mold or whatever you needed to get to, to do some of the Eames chairs. What's the history there? Well, I started with this the Eames designs very early in the 
late 80s and early 90s, nobody seemed to care. In fact, <laughs> people were laughing at me for taking these old designs and actually thinking they were viable. Interesting. I, I really think I recognize them as some of the greatest design work that's been done in the furniture genre. Sure. So nobody cared. Um, and by the time they did care, 10 years later, it was essentially my product. Mm. And there was nothing anybody could do. Uh, it's a, it was public domain. Really? So you didn't have to like license it or apply for a permit or like anything? No. Now, it's like I, common law marriage. <laughs> it was a, a bit like that. Of, of design. <laughs> yeah. And it wasn't appreciated by many people, and I can understand sure. that. Yeah. But I'd, I was pretty deep into it. The molds that you saw today were made by the original mold maker in um, Wisconsin, just outside of Milwaukee. So they're, they're very well made. Mm -hmm. And... As it turned out, the, the Eames chair is ever so slightly asymmetrical because they used wood molds to uh, form it from in the day. So I evened it out. Which, which part of the chair was asymmetrical? The back of the armchair okay. is, is asymmetrical on an old one. No way. It's probably by a 64th of an inch. Right, okay. But okay. In the right light, in the right angle, you can see it. Wow. Oh, that's fascinating. Did you study anatomy at all or anything as far as like ergonomics goes? Like when we were talking through, you know, the facility in there, we were, we were talking about like uh, your pelvis, for example, and where pressure may or may not exist. Like, how did you learn about that? It's interesting you ask that. No, I, you know, I took biology in high school sure yeah. but, and you know it's comfortable on your own butt I'm sure but I will tell you I'm an amputee uh, and in being fitted for a prosthetic uh, I learned from the clinician the different parts of the pelvis which ones can take pressure and which ones can't interesting so everything you do in life uh, can be applied right so did you find that you were making changes even to suit that or, or it just made you aware of those aspects? It, it just made me aware of where you can take pressure on your rear end. Right. And where, where you can't. And, and I mean, the, the making of a chair is a pretty old art. Sure. And so there's a lot of precedent. Yeah. That I work from. Right. Have you always been into design, though? Like, I mean, earlier you said you know, your parents dealt with antiques and stuff. What did you, were you interested in design because of that? Or did your appreciation for maybe aesthetics even precede that? I'm not sure, but I was raised around art yeah. and appreciation for art or finely made things. Yeah. Crafted pieces. I was very fortunate in that. What's been the hardest part about having this business since the late 80s? It's, I would say it's the normal business things of permits and labor and um, rent. 
releases, just the normal. Like the behind the scenes stuff. Mundane kind of things. What do you find to be the easiest part? Um, working with my creatives here is like going into a dream. You know, it's, it's like a time warp or something. Right. And so that's, it's beyond easy. You've designed some of the pieces yourself, as you were saying. I yes. think this table is one of them, right? It is. And um, there's a bench that you initially showed me. Mm-hmm. That was very much Japanese-inspired, you said. The, the woodworking techniques of it, the way it interlocks, definitely Japanese. Do you find there's a common sort of um, timeline, if you will, between like conceptualizing an idea until it's actually brought forth and maybe sellable? Oh, yeah. And it can be a year from the idea until it's, I don't want to say fully resolved, but resolved enough where you just have to cut it loose. Good enough. Let it (laughs) live a life. Right. Yeah. So it can be a long time or it can be a few months. Sure. Um, it's frustrating, you know, to, different iterations of, of a product. The, the credenza you saw that has disappearing doors. Right. I think I've been thinking about it for 10 years and not really knowing how to make those doors disappear. Um, what looks to be a solid piece of wood just disappear. Right. Um, but we figured it out. How, yeah. How do you describe that articulation? Because it's hard. This is obviously not a visual media that we're using right now to have this conversation. However, when the doors are shut on a credenza, so a sideboard table or whatever you want to call it, they do look like they would have to have hinges and fold out or in like a normal door would. But on your credenza, you actually slide it and it goes around basically on an, an arcing track within the piece to allow the doors to, sep- or to, to be hidden, as you said. It's not an accordion, obviously. No. So how do you describe it to people? Those are uh, slats, vertical slats from the same piece of wood that have been cut into vertical slats that are about uh, three quarters of an inch wide. Sure. They are then laminated to a piece of canvas or a cloth. Ah, I see. So they're able to turn a corner. Right, right. But when they come back, it appears that they're just one solid piece. Now, is that fabric stabilized in any way? I mean, obviously, it still needs like rigid or uh, flexibility, rather. Well, it's flexible, and the. But like, if you were to reach between the grooves of the slats, is it is it soft? Is it malleable? Yes. Fabric. Yes. Interesting. I just never thought to touch that aspect of of the credenza. I guess. Wow, that's fascinating. Now, how often are you doing things like, with regards to like IP, like trademarking and or, like any sort of. To, to um, 
what's the word I'm looking for? Intellectual property? Yeah. Like tra- yeah, like... Co- n- not um, a copyright, but a patent? Yeah, thank you. Like, how often are you needing or wanting to patent your work? Not very often. Maybe once a year. Um, it's an expensive process, isn't it? It is, and I have not really had too many design patents. The right. Alpine bed is has a design patent it's probably expired by now or close mm. and um the the spider leg for the chair that you saw sure that has a design patent in conjunction with a uh, fiberglass or plastic chair that type of leg unsupported uh four legs right i've been copied a lot that happens. That's just part of it. Are you litigious? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> you just rather not bother? No. Yeah. You know, one of the tricks is this: the table that we're sitting at, yeah. the tenon table, um, I tried to get a patent on that leg. I couldn't get it. Uh, wood patents are some of the earliest and most prolific patents. But what I found out is nobody can knows how, nobody can figure out how to do it, and so it, it's its you own. Don't need, yeah, you don't need it. Mm-hmm. Wow. Does having everything made in Los Angeles mean something to you in the sense of would you or I mean I know you could make things other places. I guess a better question is why is made in LA important to you? Well, one thing is it's just the way I like to do it, and I'm. It, it wouldn't interest me to just call things in and have them show up. It, it really wouldn't interest me that much. Right. It's the way I know how to keep quality control mm-hmm. and how to service clients. Mm-hmm. As it turns out, it's uh, environmentally um, a good a good way to lower your carbon footprint. That's not why I started to do that the labor pool availability of labor in Los Angeles is very unique uh, the talent uh, that is here is uh, very very strong and you've seen some of the people working sure here and I don't know that I could have done this in any other city in the United States. Right. Quite the same. How do you think about collaborations? Because you do a lot of them, or at least historically you've done a lot of them. Is that on its own calendar or is it just as it comes, you kind of pick and choose? Like what's your approach to collaborating? At this time, it's it's a scheduled uh, endeavor. Um, we're not doing that many, you know, there, there's only so many per year that we're going to do. Sure. I think I've, I'm getting more selective and, um, there's also the thing where I want to reach different demographics. Mm-hmm. So the one that you saw today is a surf related surfing related uh, group of people. So uh, we're reaching uh, the, the surf culture. Sure. 
Yeah, it's great. So that you're talking about the Gary Cooper collaboration that launched this morning. Gene Cooper, yes. Or, or excuse me, Gene Cooper. Yeah. Um, Gary Cooper. <laughs> Not different person entirely. Do you know Gene Cooper? Oh yeah. Or and you guys have been friends for a long time? Like who approached who? Like how does that work? No, I, I met him. I was introduced to him and uh, a very creative kind of partner I would call that I've worked with for years thought it would be a good mix and it turned out to, you know, that he was right. Right. But uh, Gene is a wonderful human being and so that's a qualification for being uh, um, a collaboration at Modernica is people have to be good mm -hmm. and enjoyable and creative. Um, there's all kinds of uh, temperamental people. I, I don't have room for them. Right, right. Really. Yeah. How did something like the Keith Haring come about, like using his prints? That came from the Beyond the Streets art show where they, where they wanted that. And so I made those chairs for the Beyond the Streets. And um, then they wanted us to continue. Sure. We pay a royalty. Okay. That, and they like it. Cool. We forget a lot of the families of these great artists, Basquiat, Keith Haring, they don't own those $50 million paintings or $5 million paintings. Right. Those have all been sold a long time ago. They're in museums and private collections, but they, they get royalties on other things and it's important. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I want to talk to you about your watch only because the day we met, it came about. Can you tell us what's on your wrist right now? Well, it's a Seiko Sportura. I would say it has some relationship to a Porsche um, instrument panel. And uh, it, it divides up a minute or time. Let's say it divides up time into tenths of seconds seconds, minutes, but all on separate dials. I don't know why I just, it's uh, out of the 20 or 30 watches that I've had, it's the only one I wear. That's it. That's it. And it's titanium or is it stainless? It is titanium. It is, yeah, so it's lighter too. Yeah, it's an early version of, uh, of this watch that they, they still make something I think similar. Maybe not, I'm not sure. Where did you buy it? I bought it in Omaha. Oh, no way. Okay, so how long ago? Um, 22 years ago. Now, was it new then? It was brand new. It was new then. Okay. Because yeah. it could easily pass for a watch that could have been made. And I mean, maybe with regards to like the tenths of a seconds, maybe not. But like, you never quite know when that was because it's very like 60s, 70s design. Interesting. I, you know, like it, it, it could be like Star Trek almost, you know. I saw it on the back of a British car magazine that I think is called Car. Okay. And I just knew that was my watch. That's awesome. Yeah. So you had to track it down? Yes, they only made 1,200 of them. Oh, is that right? Yeah. That's a really limited production, for, especially for Seiko. Yes, uh, yeah. Wow, that's fantastic. Now, we share several common friends, obviously, uh, through cars and such, design. Um, 
you're into airplanes though as well if i'm not mistaken well my yes my first year at college i actually went to the university of oklahoma okay they have a pretty well-known flight school and i kind of grew up in an airplane so um little little tiny airplanes so i i got a pilot's license when you were 19 19 wow do you keep current? Or no. Are you still flying? No, I don't. It's not. Los Angeles is not a real great city to be a pilot and have a private airplane. It's possible, of course, but sure, it's, uh, it's too busy. It's, it's, yeah, it's not as much fun. The airspace is pretty crowded. Very crowded, <laughs> and you know, as I get older, my attention span is uh, not maybe as what it was. Right. Sure. And that's not. That's not what a pilot's made of. Right. right. A pilot <laughs> maintaining focus is 180 pounds of focus. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Well, I really, uh, I really do appreciate you taking the time. Um, it's been fun to talk about Modernica. Is there anything that you can kind of share as far as like maybe what's coming next for the brand or the company or? It's always a work in progress. <laughs> okay. And I'm open to, I'm, I'm still, after 30 plus years, I'm still open for anything. I am in the process of making a new coffee table slash bench. I have not showed you the drawings today. Right. And That's fair. <laughs> and, and it will be a bit radical. Okay. I like that. So as we're wrapping up, though, I do want to kind of pick your brain about what you've learned about scalability and like how you intend on either maintaining scaling the business and or maintaining the business. So scale, I'm between full production and uh, studio crafting. Mm -hmm. So it's series production, but it's pretty much handmade. Right. But because, but because there's some volume, it's scalable. Uh, it's financially scalable. A lot of what I do could be put on a larger scale, and that may happen someday. Sure. Probably not under my watch, because I don't know anything about that. Right. Or I know very little. Do you have kids? I have one. Interested yeah. in running the, running the show? No, my son is a sculptor. Oh, cool. He's a welder. He uh, does metal sculpture, among other things. Uh, it's been, he's 24. It's been an a interesting journey. He's a, a full Asperger's autism. Okay. Very unusual, wonderful person. Sure. Environmentalist, of course. Very cool. He does mostly welding, though? Yes. Or does he deal with other types of sculpture? Oh, he deals with other things. Does he like throw pottery and stuff like that too? He, he will be doing that very soon. But right now he's actually working with uh, f uh, fab fabric, textiles. Nice. Um, basically making <clears throat> excuse me, paintings, uh, I would say, with fabric. I'm exposing him to all kinds of arts um, as, as long as he's willing you can go there. Oh, that's amazing. Is there any attribute of yours that you hope is instilled in him going forward? 
I'd say to be open to anything new, any new idea that that he gets. He's he's actually, I think, at this point, better at it than I am. Okay. He's a natural. I'm not. He's natural at being open. Yes, and at, at following his instincts with sensibility. Um, that's wonderful for an artist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good attribute for sure. He he was born an artist, I believe. I love it. I learned it a little bit. Okay. <laughs> well, Jay, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, really enjoyed the conversation as well. So thank you for the opportunity. Wesley, my, my pleasure. Great. Yeah. Well, we'll talk soon. Okay, good. Okay. This wraps up this episode of the Standard Age Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd love it if you'd share it with a friend or two. And if you have a moment, please rate and review the show as it helps others discover these episodes. It absolutely helps far more than you realize. Shout out to Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for the theme track, as well as Clear Audio for the noise-canceling headphones. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you in the next one. Take care. Take care.